Well, good morning, church. My name is Timon, and if you are viewing for the very first time, I want to extend a warm welcome to you. Welcome to City Reach Oakton Church Online this morning. Uh, this morning, we are beginning a new series called Hallowed Be Thy Name, where we are studying the character of God through the names of God. Now, you might ask the question, why study the names of God? Well, A.W. Tozer, he was a, he was a writer and an author uh, from the 20th century. He uh, wrote this very provocative statement. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, you're thinking, Tozer, is this really correct? The most important thing about people is what they think about God? Surely their sexuality or their you know, uh, uh, race or their, or their job is more important. No, Tozer would say, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And the reason Tozer says this is because what you think about God will affect the way that you live. What you think about God will affect the way you live. You see, if you think that God is this capricious God who has a frown on his face, who's always out to get you, then you won't really want to have a relationship with that God. Or if you think that God is like this grandfather type figure who just you know, lets anyone do whatever they want, then you'll have a pretty limited view of God. Even if you're here or you're viewing this morning and you are an atheist and you say, well, I have no thoughts about God whatsoever, even your not having any thoughts about God also affects the way that you live. You know, if you don't think there is a God, then you'll be left to forge your own meaning and purpose in the universe. So what we think about God really, really matters. And so in this series, we're just going to look at one key question. Who is God and what is he like? Who is God and what is he like? Now, when it comes to this question of who is God and what is he like, when it comes to this question, often we buy into a dangerous assumption. Often we think that we already know what God is like. And often we think that we can make up our own thinking about God and we can come to our own thoughts about God and, and, that, and everything will be okay. But that is dangerous thinking because, you know, God is a person and he's someone, regardless of who you think he is, he, he is a person, he is, he, he, he is someone. Um, Mark John, uh, John Mark Homer, in his book, God Has a Name, he, he writes this in his book. He says, the scripture writers come at it, this question of who is God, the other way, way round. Uh, he writes, from Moses to Matthew, they just assume that we have no idea what God is like. And don't think that if you're religious or even if you're a Christian, you're off the hook. Jesus spent the bulk of his time helping religious people see a lot of what they thought about God was wrong too. Uh, Mark Homer says, for Jesus and all the writers of Scripture, the starting point for all theology is the realization that we don't know what God is like, but can learn. But to learn, we have to go to the source. We have to go to revelation. Now, revelation is not uh, like, you know, the last book of the Bible. What John Marcoma means here is he means we need to go to God himself. God needs to disclose himself to us, reveal himself to us. Now, fortunately, God has revealed himself through the Bible. This is God's self-disclosure. 
of who he is, of what he is like. Now, one way of actually, therefore, answering the question of who is God and what he is like is to go to the Bible and actually look at all the statements that the Bible has about who God is. And there are plenty of statements in the Bible where God describes who he is. Now, theologians have basically categorized these statements of God into two basic lists, the commutable and the incommutable attributes of God. Uh, The commutable attributes of God are those attributes that we share in common with God. For example, God is wise and God is loving. Therefore, we can be loving and wise. But the incommutable attributes of God are the attributes of God that God has alone as God. For example, you might have heard of the omnis before. God is omnipotent. This means that God is all-powerful. You might have a little bit of capacity, but you're not like God. God is able to do whatever God wants to do. God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere present in creation. You are limited. You are only in one place at one time, but God is everywhere present within his creation. And God is omniscient. This means that God is all-knowing. He knows everything that can be known. You know, you and I, we have some knowledge, but our, typically we have to learn things. We have to grow in our knowledge. But God is not like that. He knows everything that can be known, and he doesn't have to learn it. And so there are these commutable and incommutable attributes of God that theologians put forward. You know, often on occasion, I have like taken the attributes of God and I've just read them through and prayed them through and there have been deep moments of worship for me as I've pondered the character and nature of God. But the only problem with approaching God this way is let's say you were to ask me, what is Tegan like? Tegan is my wife. And I was to say, well, Tegan is a female. She's 45 years old. (laughs) She has brown hair. She has brown eyes. She's been married to me for 26 years. I would be giving you facts about Tegan, which are all true, but I wouldn't be describing who Tegan is, her essential Teganness, who she actually is. You see, the Bible, when it comes to this question, who is God and what is he like, it not only gives us the attributes of God, statements about God's character, but it also does something else. I want you to open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Here, Moses has made a tent of meeting, and it says that in this tent of meeting, Moses would meet with God as one would meet with a friend. And then God has commissioned Moses to take God's people, Israel, into the promised land. Then in verse 18, um, Moses says to God, please show me your glory. In other words, God, I want to know the weightiness of who you are. I want to know the weightiness of your character. I want to know what makes you, you. And notice how the Lord responds to Moses. He doesn't crack open a Wayne Grudem systematic theology textbook and start listing off his attributes. As I said, there's nothing wrong with that. I quite enjoy Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. No, look at what the Lord says to Moses in verse 19. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you 
my name, the Lord. I will make my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So God hides Moses in a cleft of the rock and his glory passes by Moses. But the Lord says, I will proclaim to you my name, the Lord. Now just observe for a moment in verse 19, the name Lord there in your English translation of the Bible is translated or, or in all capitals. It's put in all capitals, capital L-O-R-D. Now the translators do this for a very specific reason and I'm going to share with you that reason a little bit later on, but just observe that for a moment. But you get my point. When God wants to reveal himself to Moses, he does it by proclaiming his name to Moses. You see, names in the ancient world were important. Names would represent the identity of a person. They would represent the character of a person. Michael Knowles, biblical scholar Michael Knowles says this. He says, in the world of the Hebrew scriptures, a personal name was often thought to dictate something essential about the bearer's identity, origin, birth circumstances, or the divine purpose that the bearer was intended to fulfill. Just think about Abraham for a moment. When we first meet Abraham in uh, Genesis chapter 12, he's called Abram. His name means exalted father, which is quite ironic given the fact that he and Sarai, his wife, are barren and they have no kids. But as you read through the story of, Mo of Abram's life, you come, God changes his name from Abram to Abraham. And Abraham means the father of many nations. And this has indicated, therefore, a change in Abraham. Or you take, for example, Jacob, Abraham's grandson. Jacob's name means, literally in Hebrew, heel grabber, which is a euphemism for a liar and a cheat. And this is exactly what Jacob was like. He conned his father. He conned his brother. He conned his father-in-law, Laban. But eventually, in one moment at the end of his life, he wrestled with God and said, God, I won't let you go unless you bless me. And God changed his name from heel grabber to Israel. He who wrestles with God, who, who struggles with God, indicating that a change had occurred in Jacob. You see, names were important back in the ancient world. They declared something of the essential character, something of the essential nature of the person. And so as we come to this question, who is God and what is he like? What you find in the pages of the scriptures. Yes, in order to, for God to reveal himself to us, he does list off his attributes. But he also reveals to us himself by the use of various names. And so what we're going to be doing over the next six weeks is we're going to be looking at six different names of God. You remember in the Lord's Prayer that we just prayed together that Jesus said, we need to pray, Lord, hallowed be your name. We need to give reverence to the name of God. We need to understand his name. So over the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at these six different names of God and their significance and what they mean and what they reveal about the God we love and worship and serve. So let's start today with the most common name for God in the Old Testament. 
And as I said, I got you to observe before that name that God proclaimed to Moses on Mount Sinai, capital L-O-R-D. And as I said, the reason that the English translators translate it this way or put it this way in your, in your English Bible is for a specific reason. You see, this is in Hebrew, the name Yahweh, the personal name of God. Now, in the Old Testament, there are three main names or three primary names for God. The first primary name for God is the name Elohim, and this is the creator God, and it's translated in your English Bible with just the English word God. It appears on the very first page of the Bible in Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. So this name refers to that invisible being that created all things. But I think it's important to note that this name, Elohim, was the generic name for God at the time. The other nations around would use this name to refer to their gods. They would use either El or Elohim, its cognate, to refer to their gods. Well, second name for God, the second primary name for God in the Old Testament, is the name Adonai. And this is a title, it means master. And this defined the relationship that Israel had with the Lord. He was their master and they were his servants. But this final name for God, the most common name for God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, was the personal name for God. Now, just to give you a bit of an introduction to this name, uh, in Hebrew, there are no vowels, or in ancient Hebrew, there were no vowels written in the ancient manuscripts. And so this name for God was just four letters, YHWH. Uh, biblical scholars call it the Tetragrammatron, which is just a fancy way of saying it's just four letters. <laughs> YHWH. And biblical scholars nowadays, they think that the best possible pronunciation of the name of God is most likely Yahweh. But there's a fair bit of mystery here because this name actually, its exact pronunciation was lost. You see, such was the Hebrew people's reverence for the name of God and such was their desire to obey the third commandment of the Ten Commandments, to not take the name of the Lord their God in vain, such was their desire to obey that commandment that they stopped saying the name out loud. They, they didn't say it out loud. They would use other things, like they would say the name, or they would say use the word Adonai instead of saying the name of God because they had this deep reverence for the name of God. And from my study this week, I found out that actually... Eventually, the name of God would only be mentioned one time a year, and that was by the high priest when he would come into the holy, the most holy place, and there he would proclaim the true pronunciation of the name, Yahweh, in the very presence of God himself. Now, after the destruction of the temple in AD 70, therefore, the, the exact pronunciation of this name was actually lost. 
And the Masoretic scribes who actually preserved the Hebrew text for us, in the 10th century, they introduced a vowel system in order to help people pronounce pronounce the, the vowels of the Old Testament. But when it came to this tetragrammatron, these four letters, Y-H-W-H, what they did is they wrote the vowels for the word Adonai underneath the word so that when people were coming across, they would realize, they would realize that um, they were supposed to say Adonai. They were not supposed to say the name of the Lord. They were supposed to reverence the name of the Lord. And this is where we got the word Jehovah from. Because as you can see on this slide that's coming up now, is that when you take the vowels for Adonai and you put them into those four letters, Y-H-W-H, you get Yehovah, Jehovah. Now this was a pretty popular way of saying the Lord's name in the 80s. I don't know if you were around in the 80s and you sung and danced that song, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, but I certainly did. That's where it sort of came from. But as I said, nowadays, most people, most biblical scholars, they, they think that probably the correct pronunciation is Yahweh to the name of the Lord. But regardless of how you pronounce it, this name is highly significant. And it was the name that God gave to Israel. So what is the significance of this name? As we said before, names reveal something of your essential character. They reveal who you are. So what is the significance of the name Yahweh, the Lord? Well, to find that out, we need to go to the very first place in the Scriptures where God gave his people this name, and that's in Exodus chapter 3. So if you want to open up your Bibles now to Exodus chapter 3. Now, in Exodus chapter 3, the people of Israel, they've been in bondage for 400 years. And God comes to Moses, and he appears to him through the burning bush. He says, take off your sandals, for the the ground on which you stand is holy ground. And then he says this to Moses in verse 6 of Exodus 3. He says, I am the Elohim of your father, and the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, and the Elohim of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at Elohim, at God. And then God tells Moses in verses 7 to verse 12 that he's heard the cries of his people and he's going to do something about it. He's going to send Moses to Pharaoh in order to release the people from their bondage. And Moses is reluctant. And in verse 13, Moses turns to God and he says to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the Elohim of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, right at this moment, every Hebrew reader's ears would pick up. Because you see, at that time, if you wanted to ask someone their name, you would say, my Shaminko. Quite literally, who is your name? But Moses doesn't say that. He says, my Shema'o. In other words, what is your name? What makes you, you, God? What is your essential nature? And notice what God says to him in verse, uh, in verse 14. Then Elohim said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now, at first, when you read this, first when I read it, I was like, God seems to be being rude here. Moses says, who are you? And God says, well, I am who I am. You know, you know back off. But that's not what God is saying. The word I am is the verb of being. And God here is revealing something very powerful about his nature as God. The first thing that he's revealing is that he is revealing that he is the self-existing one. That he is the great I am. He is the God who is. Now we don't get this as much as people living in Australia because We've lived um, basically in a Christianized society where we're used to a monotheistic way of thinking, right? But for the people of Israel who were living in Egypt at that time, Egypt was polytheistic and there was gods everywhere. The sun was a god. There were gods in the Nile. Pharaoh himself thought that he was God. And so for God, for, for, the, for the God of the fathers to come to Moses and say, I am, I am the existing one. I am the great I am. I am the true God, the one who truly exists. It was very, very powerful. Now, also, I don't know if you've ever been to Bali or you know, other countries like, like in, in Asia. And what you'll, what you'll see when you go to Bali is you'll see in front of all of the different shops, is you'll see these plates of food that they've set out for their gods. Because they believe that, you know, in order for them to be blessed, their gods need to be fed. They need to, they need to have a good meal. And this was, is what it was like in Egypt. The gods needed to be appeased. They needed to be fed. But what God is saying about himself right now is he is saying, I am the self-existing one. There is creation and there is me, the creator, and I don't need anything else in creation. I don't need food. I don't need sleep. I don't need anything. I am the self-existing God who exists outside of creation. The great refrain of the Old Testament is that God is kadosh. God is holy. He is other. There is creation. And then there is God. And this is good news. This is good news that God is the self-existing one. Because this means that he is very, very dependable. Is he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no shadow of changing with God. So that if God makes a promise to you, he will keep that promise. And for the nation of Israel at this time, God had promised the forefathers to give them the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. And so what an encouragement to know that their God was a self-existing God and he could keep his promise. He was dependable to his promise. You know, for you today, this is true as well, is that God has made us promises. And because God is the self-existing one who never changes, his promises are yes and amen in Christ. And his promises will come true, even in the most darkest moments, like it, what it was for the nation of Israel. God's promises will be true because God is the self existing one. But also, this reveals that God is the ever present one. 
I am. I am. I am the great God. You know, it might have seemed for the nation of Israel at the time that God was in the past, that God was the God of Abraham. He was the God of Isaac. He was the God of Jacob. But he's not present now. Look at us. We are in slavery. We're doing it tough here. What's going on? Where's God in the midst of all of our difficult circumstances and trials? But God comes to Moses and he says, tell them that I am. I am present with you. You know, all the way throughout this story, you see the invisible hand of God at work. You know, as uh, Graham looked at a couple of weekends ago at the story of Moses' birth and his mother, we see the invisible hand of God preparing Moses for the future that God would have for him. And you know, there might be some people here who are viewing this morning, and things are tough in your life this morning, but don't doubt God's presence with you. His invisible hand is still at work. He's still the God who is ever present in your life. But finally, and very powerfully, this name reveals that he is a person, a person. Look down in verse 15 in your Bibles. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I will be remembered throughout all generations. You know, one of the things that tends to get lost as we move from, uh, you know, move from Hebrew into English is we tend to think that the name of the Lord, Yahweh, is just a title, like ruler or king, but it's not. It was the personal name for God. And names are important because names signify relationship. Um, you know, when I go into my bank, which is never nowadays, given COVID-19, but when I used to go into my bank, and um, I go into my bank, and my bank manager, he would turn to me and say, Mr. Benson. And that was completely appropriate because, you know, I am the customer, and he is, um, they are my bank. But when I go into my home at night, my kids, they greet me by another name. They call me Dad. Now, there are only six people on this planet who can call me by that name, my five daughters and my son-in-law, Dave. And they can call me by that name because we have that type of relationship. That name signifies the relationship that we have. You know, it was interesting, a couple of years ago, um, when we went back to Queensland with, with, my, with my family, uh, my uh, kids were, were blown away because uh, we hadn't been back all that often to Queensland because we lived in the United States for a while and we lived in Perth and we lived here in Adelaide. But when we went back, they were blown away because my two brothers, they call me Timmy. That's the nickname they have for me. Now, don't you go getting any ideas, all right? You have to still call me Timon or Pastor Timon. But they would call me Timmy. And the reason they would call me Timmy is because that's the type of relationship they have with me. They have that close, intimate relationship with me as my brothers. And so here, the Lord was revealing to Israel his personal name. So that throughout all generations... 
as the people of Israel would say the great Shema in Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is Elohim and Yahweh is one. As they said that, they would be reminded of their covenant Lord, the one who had delivered them out of Egypt, the one who had parted the Red Sea before them so they walked through on dry ground, the one who had provided for them miraculously in the wilderness, the one who had defeated their enemies as they came in to the land of Canaan. It would invoke their relationship with their covenant Lord. Now a question that I had and maybe you have is the Lord says, this is my name forever. <laughs> The name that I am being to be remembered by throughout all generations. So why don't we as Christians use the name Yahweh that much nowadays? Well, I never forget when I discovered this. Um, I was translating the Bible from, uh, I was at seminary and I was translating the Bible from Greek into English. I was translating Philippians 2, the great kenosis passage of Paul. And as I was translating it, it hit me. You see, in that passage, Paul says, he talks about Jesus who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself of no reputation and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. But then Paul says, but God has highly exalted him and he has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is what? That Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the long-awaited coming of Yahweh into the world. As John said, Jesus is the one who came and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only God come from the Father. Jesus, as we studied through the Gospel of John, he used the I am statements to show who he was. In fact, he said, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to stone Jesus. You see, when you think of the name Jesus, what should come to your mind as well is how good Jesus has been to you. That he came into this world, he took on human flesh, he died on the cross for you. He rose again in glory. Is there any other name more glorious, more exalted than the name of Jesus, our Lord? So this name, Lord, is significant. It's a significant name. It reveals that God is the self-existent one and therefore can be trusted. He will fulfill his promise. It reveals that uh, God is the ever-present one, even when we can't see him. His hand, his invisible hand, is still working in our lives. And it reveals that he is personal. He wants to have a personal relationship with us. You know, we learn these names of God, not just to learn more about the character of God, but the scriptures over and over again, they teach that we need to call. We need to call on the name of the Lord. We need to call on the name of the Lord. And maybe this week, this week is a terrible week for you. Remember that in Exodus 3, 
The nation of Israel was in bondage. They were suffering. And maybe you need to call on the name of the Lord, say, God, you are the self-existing one. The one who doesn't change is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I'm going to rely on your promises even when I don't see it. I'm going to know that you're present with me even when I don't feel it. And God, I thank you for Jesus, that he is the one who has brought me into relationship with you in the new covenant. And by his work, I am now dressed in perfect righteousness before you, Lord God. So maybe this week you need to pray that name of God as you walk with God this week. So who is God and what is he like? Well, over the next six weeks, we're going to discover more about the character of God through studying the names of God. Next week, we're going to look at how he is our shepherd. So join us next week as we look at that name of God. But this week, spend time reflecting on the character of God. Turn to Psalm 103 and pray that through. It's a great psalm which reflects on all that God has done, all that the Lord has done. And let me pray right now. Father, we just thank you for this powerful, powerful moment, this holy moment. Just as Moses was on holy ground as he appeared before the burning bush when you revealed that name to him, Lord, it's a holy moment we're in right now as you reveal, as we've opened your revelation, your word, and seen how you reveal yourself to be. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't make up a God of our own imagination or of our own thinking, but we would come to grips with who you really are as you've revealed yourself from the Scriptures, your true nature, God. And Father, I pray that as we walk with you and pray to you, Father, Lord, that we would be transformed and changed by knowing you. And I pray this now in the name of Jesus, our sovereign Lord and Saviour. Amen.